And look here, a special guest all the way from Snowbird Country, my friend, the Reverend, yes. uh, Marine Captain. Amen. Lucky, luckier, well, I was going to say, he's the lucky one, his spouse not so much, but he's married, he's, he's really married way over his head. Let's see what else I, I can say. I overmarried. You overmarried. Full of compliments. And uh, he came down, he came down to see what the beach was like in the summer, and he's headed home as quick as he can get out of here today. So, uh, but he'll be back for the winter season. Russ Clark, thanks for thanks reading. Thanks so today. much, Ronnie. Yeah. <clears throat> It's, um, it's good for Martha and for me to be with you this morning, and we're grateful to be at home. This is home. We've been coming for several years, and uh, yes, we are snowbirds and going back home today, but we'll see you in seven weeks, and we look forward to the winter with you. Um, coming down to this uh, part of the, hemp, the panhandle this time of year, um, I made three observations. One, it is a lot warmer, and two, it is uh, more crowded. And three, there are a lot more bikinis on the beach. <laughs> there are. There are. <laughs> the, uh, the reading for uh, today is taken from the gospel. How <laughs> oh, is that for a segue? Great. <laughs> You're on a roll, The master of segues, yes. The truth shall set you free. The truth shall set you free. Exactly. The Gospel of Luke uh, for this morning, written by Luke, um, the beloved physician he's called for Roman Catholics. He is the patron saint uh, for doctors and for surgeons. He was a uh, companion of St. Paul on those first missionary journeys, and uh, the reading is from his Gospel. As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria, as he entered a village there, ten men with leprosy stood at a distance crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, Praise God! He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Today we have with us the family of Caroline Wallace. Where are they sitting at? They've, I've lost, they may be scattered. Oh, they're there in the, the they're back row Baptist today. They're back there. Dan uh, Dixon, and uh, who's a niece, and, uh, and Caroline didn't have children, but she has so many nieces and nephews, and great nieces and great nephews. And I'll say more about Caroline here in just a few minutes. Uh, she passed away recently, and these. Flowers here before us are from the family today to share in her memory and in her honor. And um, I have one great memory I'd like to share real quick. One day I was driving down Highway 98, moving along at a pretty good clip of speed. And this big, massive 
1970s vintage automobile passed me like I was backing up. <laughs> and I looked over, and it's Caroline. And she's got the window crack, that red hair is in the breeze. I mean, just flying. And I picked up the phone and called Cindy and my wife and said, your buddy Caroline just nearly ran over me on Highway 98. <laughs> I guess she was 90 at the time and still driving. And uh, I'm not saying she was driving reckless. I'm not saying anyone should have taken her license away from her. But she sure was driving fast. And every time I've thought of her since then, I've thought of this song. So I'd like to share it this morning. Won't you 
stand up and take a bow. And when we all get older, walking canes and hair of gray. hard to hear I will stand real close to you and say thank you for being a friend 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 As I mentioned a moment ago, we are honored with the presence of Caroline Wallace's family with us today. Again, her family is with us today, and they shared with me, her family did, that there were two groups of people here in South Walton County that were very important to her. One of them was a Simple Faith Church, and the other was the Seagrove Garden Club uh, that she was a vital member of. And so we felt it more than appropriate to incorporate her memorial into our regular service this morning. Before her health declined, Caroline was a constant here. And while many of you may not have known her personally, you were a large part of her life. And keeping with the scripture reading for today, she was thankful for that. Many of you as well may not know of the extraordinary life that Caroline Wallace led. She was far more than just that flaming redhead with a green thumb driving that giant car down 30A at 60 miles an hour. She was that. Caroline was born in Winder, Georgia, January 10th, 1925. 1925, Mussolini was in power in Italy. 
The first Iditarod was run, not as a contest, but to save the village of Nome, Alaska from diphtheria. The Great Gatsby was published that year. The Scopes Monkey Trial in Dayton, Tennessee began. Mount Rushmore was completed and dedicated. Paul Newman was born that year. So was Yogi Berra, B.B. King, Margaret Thatcher, Barbara Bush, Robert Kennedy, and Johnny Carson. Calvin Coolidge was the President of the United States. Sears and Roebuck opened its first store in Chicago. The Grand Ole Opry was born and began broadcasting on WSM Radio in Nashville. Scotch tape was invented. And Billy, Alabama won its first national championship in 1925. I did my penance, okay? So we can let it go, all right? A loaf of bread cost nine cents. You could buy a brand new Chevrolet for $525. Raggedy Ann was the most popular child's toy. Education was not yet compulsory in this country. And the life expectancy of someone born that year, like Caroline, was 54 years. Caroline Saunders Wallace lived to be 94 years old, outliving her parents and seven siblings, she was a graduate of the Georgia Baptist School of Nursing at the height of World War II and also the University of Maryland. She studied at John Hopkins University, Emory University, and the University of Michigan. She went on to teach nursing at Vanderbilt University and the University of Tennessee, and in her retirement taught at Gulf Coast Community College in Panama City Beach. Nursing was indeed her passion, the compulsion that she had to help others, and I like just a side note that Minnie Pearl was one of her peers in the teaching profession, by the way, just as an aside. She moved to Seagrove permanently in 1970, and if you want to think about how the world has changed since 1925, think about how Seagrove and 30A have changed since 1970, this remote, pristine, undiscovered paradise that it was. That move was the fulfillment of a dream. Her late husband was from Defuniac Springs, and he would fish in the Gulf of Mexico as a teenager and as a young man, and one day as he was coming into harbor, he gazed upon the beautiful white cliffs of Blue Mountain Beach and Seagrove, and he made himself a promise that one day I will live there, and he and Caroline did, both of them finishing their days right here in the land that they loved so very much. You never know who is living among us. Did you know all of that about Carolyn Wallace? You see a tottering old man or a frail old woman, and the temptation is to think that they are a nobody, that they're used up, that they're has-beens. Well, okay, but they were once as young as you and younger. They were once in the prime of life. They were once children. They were once exceptionally gifted, talented, engaged, trained professionals. And just because they now drive a car much too large and much too fast and spend time planting flowers and setting gemstones and petting dogs doesn't mean that they still aren't those things. They are. It just means that their part has been done and it's time for others to do their part. Caroline Wallace was a member of a group of people that Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation. Born before 1930, 
This group endured the Great Depression. They took on the burden of the Second World War, all of them. And the heroes of that war weren't just the soldiers overseas. It was those like Caroline who persevered to get an education, who healed, who taught school, who became civil servants and shopkeepers, who wove a social and societal tapestry that we enjoy until this very day, though we seem, we preceding generations, intent on tearing it apart. Without the sacrifices of Caroline Wallace, her generation, there, and there are so few of them left, we would not enjoy the bounty that has been ours. And surely we can find it in our hearts on a day like today to have gratitude for those that have lived their lives before us. The lectionary text today, which you have heard read, is Luke 17, 11 through 19. And what a beautiful story it is. One known to us only because of Luke. And I think it's appropriate today that it's a story about healing, about giving life back as Caroline, Caroline spent her life. Ten men approach Jesus. They are lepers, not big cats with spots. Lepers. These men have leprosy, and this is a leper colony, and they shout to Jesus from a distance for him to help them, and they did not ask for healing directly, though certainly that's what they wanted. They ask only for mercy. They want to be made well, to be restored, and they are careful to keep their distance because that was the proper protocol. In Jewish society of the time, leprosy was common. But it also meant staying away from society. You didn't go to church or temple. You didn't go to synagogue. You didn't go to family gatherings. You didn't live at home. You were in quarantine because leprosy was so highly contagious. And so legally, socially, and religiously, they were cut off from Jewish life altogether. It is hard for us to imagine that sort of stigma attached to this disease as we don't encounter anything like that, especially not here in the West. Leprosy today is known as Hansen's disease. It can be cured with $200 of antibiotics. And it's gone. But in that day, it was a death sentence. Because what happened with leprosy is that the nerve endings of the skin, it's a nerve disease, the nerve endings of the skin would stop functioning. And so you would lose like neuropathy, you're feeling. And you wouldn't even know if you had hurt or cut yourself. And before long, the skin would turn white and splotchy, and then gangrene would sit in. And I'm not exaggerating when I say entire parts of your extremities would just begin to fall off. And it also affected the eyes and caused blindness. It affected the respiratory tract and caused the inability to breathe. It's a horrible disease. Something like out of a zombie movie these days. But it wasn't science fiction, it was real. And what does Jesus say to these lepers? He says, go and show yourself to the priest. What a strange instruction that is. And as they go, they are made whole. See, there was a method for lepers, the disease, to come back into society. If by some miracle of God, their health was restored... They would go to a priest, and the priest, would not a doctor, the priest would examine them. 
Look at their skin. And then there was this elaborate ceremony to bring them back into the community. They'd kill a few birds, make a few prayers, and, and drink some olive oil, and spray some water, and jump around on one foot and pat it. Not, I'm, that's just a slight exaggeration. But there was a big process to this. Because to enter back into society was not a medical issue, it was a religious issue. Because once you had this kind of disease, you were considered untouchable, cursed of God. Because the feeling was that only those, only those that had God's anger set against them would suffer like this. And isn't it still true all these years later that most of our religious ceremonies are about keeping the riffraff out? Still. Still, to this day. But here, in this ceremony, they're going to be brought back into society. Now, they're made whole, and maybe that means that fingers started growing back. Earlobes started growing back. Sight is restored. They could feel their lungs inflate for the very first time. And they all run to the priest except one. What does he do? He comes back to Jesus. He doesn't go... And hug his wife who, has, who he hasn't touched in 10 years. He doesn't go and scoop up his children who he had to leave behind when they were newborns. He doesn't go see his dying parents one last time and kiss them for the first time in a decade. None of those things. He goes straight to Jesus. And gratefully worships at the feet of this Jewish rabbi. And he is a Samaritan. He's got the double whammy. Not only is he untouchable, he's of the Jews' most hated, most bitter racial enemies. He's an outcast, and he's an illegal alien. He's cursed, and he's a foreigner. He's sick, and he's dirty. And Jesus says, he asks a few rhetorical questions. Didn't, didn't I heal everybody? Well, yeah. Uh, is this the only one, this foreigner? Is this the only one to come back and give praise to God? This is called grace. And it is the source of all gratitude. Do you want to be a more thankful person? It is good for you, you know, to be thankful. The way that you become more thankful is not to say to yourself, I'm going to be more thankful. That doesn't seem to work. The way to become a person of gratitude and thanks is simply to recognize the grace, the goodness in your life that you have received. That's how you become grateful and thankful. When you get not what you deserve, but better, that is not the time and the place to run along with your life crowing about how you earned something. It is time to fall on your knees and thank God in heaven that you won the equivalent of heaven's lottery. As Brendan Manning often said, we are all beggars at the door of God's mercy. And he takes the beggars in, all of us. And once inside the door, once we know the love of God, we can't lock the door behind us and say, Ha! 
Me and my sins got in, but you and yours won't. Beggars don't do that. People that have received grace don't do that. Beggars aren't doorkeepers. Beggars aren't table fencers. Beggars aren't rule enforcers. These are they who remember that everything they enjoy in life is a gift. They are grateful and can only rejoice when someone else finally finds the same grace that they enjoy. I'll try to tie this together if I can. You know what gave Caroline such longevity, such a smile, such a put-my-car-in-the-wind-and-drive attitude? Gratitude. Gratitude for grace. Because, listen, you don't survive Appalachia in the early 20th century, the Great Depression, a world war without, without a measure of heaven's kindness in your life. You don't escape poverty, hard times, rise to the top of an educational institution and retire at the beach just because you worked hard and earned it. Grace was involved. Grace is always involved. Billy Graham used to say, and I think he was quoting Alex Haley, if you are walking along and come to a turtle sitting on a fence post, you can be sure of one thing. That turtle didn't get there by itself. Somebody put it there. That's grace. Save your stories about being a completely self-made person. That you did it all by yourself. No, you didn't. We have all been the recipients of long-standing, historically consistent, heaven-sent, unknown and unsent grace, unseen grace. You are who you are and you have what you have, not because you deserve it, but because every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, our God who is in heaven. The proper response is not to brag about it or to prevent others from getting theirs. The proper response is to live a life of generosity, of grace, of gratitude. The proper response is to be thankful and to live it out. So I told you this story about a decade ago, and I've written about it a few times. It seems appropriate today as it invokes the memory of another of our greatest generation alumnus. A man was in my church, the very first church that I was a part of. I was too young. I was far too young. People say, what would you say to young, young people that are starting out in the ministry today? Well, the first thing I say is don't. And the second thing, <laughs> I'm kidding, kind of. The second thing I say is don't, don't get started too early. I was ordained at 21 years of age. I was on staff at a church shortly thereafter, and I was much too young. And one of the reasons that I remember this event is because I was too young and overwhelmed by what to say and by what to do. It was Christmas Eve, 1997. And um, I had moved on from that first church to my second church, and there was a young lady that had been in my youth group at my, at my very first church assignment, and she had come to the church that I was now pastoring. Her name was Greta. Greta's a school teacher today, fantastically successful. Lives on the family farm still. 
On Christmas Eve 1997, her father was killed in a farming accident. His name was Grethel, Grethel Thomas. And he didn't come to church much, but he showed up on occasion. And if you grew up on a farm, you know that even if it is a holiday, the cows still have to be fed. And he was moving those giant round bales of hay, and it was a foggy Christmas Eve, and he pulled out on a highway, didn't see a car coming, and, and was killed. And so there I am, much too young to know what to say or what to do. And I was given this, thankfully, thankfully, talk about grace, a very small portion of the funeral service. And the rest of the funeral service was given by a man who came in. He was a Baptist minister, Baptist preacher named T.J. Cleveland. I met him one time at the funeral and never met him again. He came in that day, and like I've already said earlier, he was a man in his 70s by then, and he was on crutches, and he was stooped over. And again, when you're young and full of yourself, you tend to think, well, who's that old man? Then you wake up one day and you have this on your face and you say, well. <laughs> so I did my small part and TJ got up to speak and he, uh, he got up behind the podium and he set his crutches against the podium and he grabbed hold of the lectern to lean on and big tears were just running down his face. And he said, uh, I came back today one last time to say thank you. And then he told this story. In the summer of 1944, Grethel and TJ were young men in the 91st Infantry Division of the U.S. Army making landings in Italy. Their unit engaged with German and Italian enemy in what is now called the Gothic Line Campaign. Dreadful days of heat and fear, bloodshed and loss. The campaign consisted of fighting from pillbox to pillbox, foxhole to foxhole, weaving through barbed wire and entanglements negotiating minefields. T.J. stepped on one of those mines. It instantly blew off both his legs and propelled him down a cliff strewn with mines. It was the heat of the battle. Bullets were flying. T.J. called from the bottom of the ravine to his friends to leave him, to not take any risk. And Grethel, took a rope and tied it to a stump and weaved over the course of eight hours down that ravine between mines and shooting bullets with shrapnel and two bullets already in his body. And he picked up his comrade TJ off that ground with no legs and tied him to his back and for eight more hours climbed out of that ravine. This man who had been a simple farmer in our community all my life, purple heart, bronze star, a jewelry box full of medals that nobody knew about. And this man shows up at the end of his life and gives this eulogy. And he's standing there, crippled, but alive. And he said, I have tried to live my life in grateful thanksgiving that this man gave that life back to me. So I came back one last time to say thank you. That's how you live. You take a moment to recount your life right now 
And there's not a person here in this room right now that could not say, I shouldn't even be alive and be sitting here. Am I right? But here you are. And that is a gift of God. So take what you have and live it accordingly.